The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In today's text, we'll see Jesus' second sign miracle, which he performed in Galilee. Remember, the signs are real historical events that Jesus did in history, but they also teach an enduring, saving lesson for us to learn from. And John told us this at the end of this gospel, at the end of John's gospel in chapter 20. He said there were many other signs which Jesus performed, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing have life in his name. So this sign is recorded so that we would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. In fact, I think this sign, maybe more than any of the others, gets at that main theme, faith. So if someone was to ask, what is the purpose of this sign miracle? I think the answer is to take Jesus by trusting his word to take Jesus by trusting his word. If you have your Bible open to John 4, that's where we are. If you need to use the Pew Bible, turn to page 1057, and we'll work through the end of John 4. The title of today's sermon is Learning to Trust Jesus, because today's sign is intended to help us take Jesus in faith. Here's how today's sermon and teaching will work. We'll walk through these verses, one verse at a time, make some observations of what God is telling us in them. And then at the end, we'll give five enduring lessons for the way this text would help us live. Okay, now he started reading in verse 46. I'd like you to back up to verse 43. That'll transition us a little bit into this final passage in John 4, this second sign in Galilee. Verse 43 of John 4 After the two days he departed for Galilee, the two days where, maybe you remember from last week, two days in Samaria that he lingered and ministered to those who had heard the testimony from the woman at the well. Now verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now verse 44 and 45 have really confused professional scholars who've devoted their whole life to studying the Gospel of John. And I don't want to spend too long on them, but I at least want to take a minute to help us see how clear the Bible is. Verse 44 says that Jesus isn't received well in his hometown. And verse 45 said Jesus is received well in his hometown. How do we make sense of that apparent contradiction? Let me tell you a couple bad ways. It's been approached over church history. The early church father, Origen, he argued that actually maybe what's happening is Jesus was only received poorly in his hometown of Judea. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so that would be southern Israel. But maybe he was received well in in northern Israel. But that doesn't work at all biblically because Jesus was raised in Nazareth, which is in Galilee in northern Israel. And the Bible repeatedly calls Nazareth and Galilee his hometown. I could give you many references later. So origin is wrong. Okay. All right. Then there's another common option that's also not correct. And that would be those who are text critical scholars. I'll give you an example. One is named R.E. Brown. And he said that, well, the text doesn't seem to make sense. So let's just take verse 44 out of the Bible. 
Hopefully you understand we shouldn't do that as a knee-jerk reaction, especially without any textual reason to do so. So if those are the wrong answer, what is the right answer? And, uh, and I spent 45 minutes on this. I, I'm old school. I printed a map of Israel in Jesus' day. And then I did what I think is the best thing to do. I read the Bible, okay? And so I started reading in John 1, verse 1, and I read all the way to the text we're in. And on my map, I highlighted everywhere the text said Jesus was and when he moved and why he moved. I thought about putting the map on the screen for you, but my drawings are really, really ugly. But basically, there are seven places he was, and that'll really help us understand what's happening in John 4. I'm going to give them to you really quickly. Uh, you could do this on your own. So first time that we, we read where Jesus is, is John 1, verse 28. He's in Bethany, east of, of Jordan. So if you know Israel, that southern Judea is on the east side of the Jordan. He's there with John the Baptist, baptizing. And then he moves up to Galilee. This is John 1, verse 43. And he must have gone east of the Jordan. He did not go through Samaria this time. Then third, he's at, the, he's at Cana in Galilee. It's John 2, verse 1. This is where he performs the first sign. He turns water into wine. Then fourth, he goes all the way south to the city of Jerusalem. That's where he clears the temple. Then fifth, he goes east of the Jordan once again, once with, again with John the Baptist. But this time, the sixth thing, he decides to go through Samaria, though it was out of the way. And we read about that last Sunday. So now he comes back over, goes through Samaria, ministers to the woman at the well. She then ministers to the other Samaritans. And then finally he goes back to Galilee. And that leads us to our text today, John 4, verse 43. How does that geography help? Here's how. Remember, Jesus is a lowly carpenter's son, probably a carpenter himself, grew up in Galilee. Nobody thinks he's a big deal. Then he turns water into wine. People start to notice him. Then he goes down to Jerusalem and he clears the temple just by essentially speaking. Then people start to notice him. Then he goes out to John the Baptist and the Pharisees start sending people to check on him because he's growing in popularity. Then he goes through Samaria and in Samaria, people don't just notice him. They actually believe in him. They're not just excited about his growing popularity. They worship and trust in him. Now, this is what the Jews in Judea didn't do. Remember John 2, 23 through 25? They believed in him, but he would not believe in them. And now John 4, he returns to Galilee, a budding celebrity figure of sorts. People have heard of him. They're from his town, but as he comes back, they're excited about what he can do. They're not willing to love and trust him for who he is, which is why we see that he is a prophet without true honor in his hometown, even though they are welcoming him, but for the wrong reasons. Make sense? So we already have a lesson that you and I still need today. Here's the lesson. There's a counterfeit kind of Christianity that finds the idea of Jesus popular, exciting, or useful, but that won't actually trust Jesus for who he is according to what he has said. And that counterfeit kind of Christianity has existed for a long time. In today's passage, Jesus wants people to trust him, not just to have fervor or popularity in public perception, but to instead trust him by taking him at his word. If today's text seems familiar to you, 
It's not the same as the Roman centurion who had a servant. Today is a royal official who has a son. And from today's second sign, we will learn this all-important lesson. We take Jesus, the true Jesus, by trusting him through his word. Now we're ready for verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. I hope you can picture the scene. Remember, this is where he turned water into wine. These are fairly small and tight-knit tight-knit communities of people. It's very likely when he returned, people who were at the wedding are there waiting for him. Maybe even the bride and the groom. So picture a gathering crowd of excitement, and here comes Jesus. But at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. The ESV reads a little bit clunky. I don't want you to be confused. This man is from Capernaum. And he's left his son there, and he's come to Cana, where Jesus has returned, and where the crowd has gathered. And he's come a while. It's about 16 miles to get there on foot. Have you ever heard the old story people say, uh, well, you kids have it so easy today, you take a school bus. When I was a kid, I had to walk 10 miles through snow, uphill, both ways. It normally goes something like that. In this case, the man really did have to walk uphill. So Cana is higher than Capernaum. He goes 16 miles uphill, really, the whole way. It's a long distance to see Jesus. It must really matter to him to go. So who is this man? Well, verse 46 just says an official. The Greek says basilikos, a royal official. Scholars who I respect a lot wrestle with whether or not he's a Gentile or a Jew. It's not immediately clear. Dr. Kostenberger, who's really sharp, says that he's a Gentile. Dr. Carson, who's really sharp, says he's a Jew. So (laughs) there you go. But the text doesn't tell us either. The text doesn't tell us either, I think, for this reason. Where's the one place Jesus has been received well so far? Samaria. And now he comes back, and among his own people, there is no reception. And yet this problem is one that's true for all humanity. An excitement about what Jesus can do, a popularity about how others respond to him, rather than a trust in who he is according to his own word. So John the Gospel has left this information for us so that we would see that we all could make the same mistake that is happening commonly in John 4. People excited about, but rather than trusting and loving Jesus for who he is. Now, here's what's helpful to know about this royal official. No doubt he would have worked for Herod, who's the Tetrarch, treated like a king in that day, which means this royal official would have had access to great wealth and great power. Most of life, he would have a distinct advantage over his peers. But don't we all know, no matter what our social position or earthly security, we're all one breath away from suffering that we have no control over? So here this man has a son who's near death, and there's nothing he can do about it, regardless of his social position or earthly possessions. But let's credit him. He comes to Jesus. And praise God, he comes himself. He doesn't send his servant. He doesn't send his spouse to take care of stuff related to the children. He comes himself. But at this moment in time, picture the drama of this scene, all the Galileans gathered at Cana, and here's this royal official coming to seek help from this lowly carpenter. And now verse 47. When this man heard 
that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now these verses, I think, are the, are the two verses that the whole text hinges on. So let's pause enough to make sure we understand them. Verse 40, 47, the man comes down. Unfortunately, the ESV writes, and he asked him, which is far too soft of a way to translate it. The NASB writes, he was imploring him. The NIV, begging him. The King James besought him. The net begged. The CSB pleaded. You see how those words capture it much better. This man is desperate for Jesus to please, please heal my son. Last month, I had a moment with my own son in the garage. My son, throughout the day, had been calling me dude. I finally hit this point where I said to him, you know, please quit calling me dude. Call me dad. And I must have said it fairly harshly because I looked at him and he had tears welling up in his eyes. And I said, son, why do you call me dude instead of calling me dad? And he sniffled and he wiped away his tears and he said, because you're my best friend. And I was like, well, I guess you can call me dude, you know. <laughs> I don't know how to push back on that one. I mean, what wouldn't we do for our children? Wouldn't you go 16 miles uphill? I mean, your son is going to die. You don't know much, but you know people think this Jesus is a miracle worker. I guess I'll go, and I'll ask. Never read the Bible like it's an academic account. Remember, these are real people, just like us, with real suffering, real need. This man's desperate need has compelled him to come to Jesus for one reason, Jesus, heal my son. That's what makes 48 so hard to read. This man's desperate, begging, please heal my son. And look at what Jesus says in verse 48. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, man, that, that seems harsh. It almost appears insensitive. Let's make sure we understand it. First, there's one thing happening in verse 48 that you can't read in English. Jesus is using a second person plural. He's not just talking to the man. He's talking through the man to the gathered crowd. The comment Jesus is giving in verse 48 is for all y'all, right? He wants everyone to know what he's saying here. You people tend to want signs and wonders or you will not believe still difficult, though. So let me make sure we understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is actually doing two very gracious things in verse 48. Here's the first one. He's teaching the man and everybody else there. Awe that stops at the sensational is not saving faith. Awe that stops at the sensational. Excitement is not the same as being humbled. And everyone needs to know that. You see, there's many people who have been impressed who have not been saved. Think of Pharaoh. Didn't he see 10 breathtaking miracles? Wasn't he impressed at them? And yet at the end, he would not humble himself 
At the end, he still believed, I'm the most important person in the universe. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? As impressive as he is, I'm still more impressed with me. Awe at the sensational is not the same as saving faith. Judas saw all these miracles too. There's something else. And this is the other thing that Jesus is doing specifically for this man. This is the brilliance of a second person plural. Probably the first one's mainly for the audience, but the second one is probably mainly for this man. An acute awareness of our present suffering must expand into a wider scope. Whatever the, pre- whatever the presenting problem is that brings us to Jesus, we do need Jesus for that, but we need him for much, much more than that. Jesus needs this man to understand, you are right to come to me for this. You ought to come to me for much more. Much more. Your need is far bigger than you think it is. Dr. Kostenberger writes, in this way, Jesus discourages clamor for miraculous manifestations, not undergirded by a willingness to believe in the one performing them. If it seems like Jesus is being too harsh, many of you know from your own personal salvation testimonies, you needed a check like this yourself. C.S. Lewis, in his excellent book, Surprised by Joy, writes about his own unlikely conversion. And here's what he says. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Is that not true? The hardness of God that first challenges me, you, you need to actually believe me, is much kinder than that soft kindness in our culture that does nothing to save you. Nothing. God's compulsion is our liberation. Believers have always understood this. John Bunyan, who famously wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said this about his own conversion. In times of affliction, we come to grips with the sweetest experience of the love of God. And in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote this. God teaches us to first cling to and then enables us through the gift of faith to the mercy of God. This mercy has its cause and effect in the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is challenging this man to come to him for more than just this miracle. By the way, Jesus has challenged everybody like this. Remember what he said to the Samaritan woman at the well? If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask for the water of life so that you would never thirst again. Remember what he said to Nicodemus? If you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask to be born again. You've come for far too narrow of a thing. So now verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Well, the man, to his credit, still makes a request even after a statement that could have easily rebuffed him. Credit the man for this. God has given him a hard statement, and he hasn't run away. He is persistent. No, please, come down before my child dies. But now verse 50, let's read just the first half of verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. What Jesus is doing is remarkable. The man said, will you come down? Jesus said, no. I'm not coming down. You have to go. You have to go without me coming. You have to trust without me walking down with you. You have to trust what I'm going to say 
your son will live. Now, Jesus, by refusing to go, means the man has to trust without any empirical confirmation. He has to take God at his word, which is enough. And the promise is amazing. Your son will live. What will the man do? The end of verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The words of Jesus are emphasized twice, word and spoke. The man is given the word of Jesus and believes and trusts and leaves. There's two common schools of knowing things in philosophy. It's sort of philosophy 101. And I know this is a simple generalization of those, but the first school is called verificationalism, the idea that you can believe something if you can experience it or empirically prove it. The other school is sometimes called perspectivalism. The idea is, well, you have your truth and my, I have my truth. In this case, neither are even applicable. Jesus says, go, your son will live. You don't get to prove it or do a theory or anything. You just have to go. And in terms of the, well, you have your truth and I have mine, how does that help in this situation? His son is going to die. There is no my truth, your truth. You just have the word and you trust or you don't. Jesus gives his word. And remember, the man asked for a miracle, and he receives the word of God. Now, verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m., the fever left him. As the man nears home, the servants meet him before he gets home. And tell them, again, through word, that the son that was dying is now recovering and living. And the man does the time stamping, and it's the exact time when Jesus said, Go, your son will live. So verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. If you've been keeping score, this is now the third and final time that we read the man believed. But the question we should ask is, believe what? Because by verse 53, he already knows his son is living and his son is recovering. What is he possibly believing now? The very thing that Jesus widened his scope for, now he believes in Jesus through trusting him through his word. See, the man came for a miracle but he left with his own Messiah. He came for his son, but he left with his own Savior. This is why Jesus challenged him to expand his purview. And now he gets it, and praise God, it has also impacted his household. Verse 54 tells us, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come down from Judea to Galilee. A sign is a real event in history, but it also has an enduring saving lesson. The big picture lesson is that we can only truly have Jesus when we trust him through his word. So now let me give you five lingering life lessons that I think emerge from today's passage. Five life lessons from today's passage. Here's number one. It's very similar to what I just said. Ultimately, we can only have Jesus by trusting him through his word. We can only have Jesus by trusting him through his word. This is what the Bible says. John 10, verse 27. My sheep 
hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Romans 10 verse 17, many of you know this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word about Christ. So think on that, friends. The Bible is telling us very, very clearly that any assistant means that the Lord may use to help us see the truth are not as sufficient as the word of God. So evidentialist arguments may be helpful. They can't get you all the way. Scientism, historicism, empiricism, fideism, rationalism can help you. They cannot get you all the way. The only thing that gets you from where you are to Christ is trusting his word. Now, there's a pastor who told a story recently that I found very helpful. Let me share it with you. George Arthur Buttrick from 1927 to 1954 was the pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. And one day, he had flown for a speaking engagement on the other side of the country, and he was flying back. And this is the day before laptops, so he's sitting there on the plane, and he has a legal pad out, and he has a pencil, and he's working vigorously. And the person next to him has been trying to contain his curiosity as best he can. He eventually can't hold it in anymore. So he says to George, I hate to disturb you. You're so obviously working hard on something. What in the world are you working on? George responded, well, I'm a Presbyterian minister and I'm working on my sermon for Sunday. Well, the guy responded with great disinterest and said, ugh, religion. I don't like to get caught up in all that. You know, the complexities, the ins and outs of religion. I like to keep it simple, you know. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The golden rule, that's my religion. I see, said George. And what do you do? And the man said, oh, I'm an astronomer. I teach at the university here. Ah, yes, said George. I see, astronomy. Hmm. I don't like to get caught up in all the ins and outs and complexities of astronomy. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's my astronomy, you know. You see the, the simple point, right? Could, can you really dismiss something enormously complex when it has revelation available to you without taking the revelation on its own and treating it seriously? We live in a cultural moment where when someone reveals what they believe about themselves, we're supposed to immediately affirm it as truth unless that someone speaking is God. Here he has told us who he is through his word, and that is the way we know him, through trusting and receiving his revelation. So number one, you can only have Jesus if you will trust him through his word. Now number two, you have to believe before you get all the way home. You notice the man was told, go, your son will live. I need to trust that before he gets all the way home. Have you noticed how many promises God gives us? You have to trust them before you get all the way home. How about John 14, one through three? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I've gone to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where I am, you may be also. On Friday, I was at an assisted living community because some of our brothers and sisters from our church have just relocated from their home and are now in an assisted living community. And that is always a difficult transition. And when I visited them on Friday, they were wrestling with the difficulty of that new change in their life. And they confided that it's been hard to trust that 
God is still for them and still with them and still has a good future for them. And I said, you know, actually on Sunday, I'm going to be preaching through John 4. And the man in John 4 also had to believe Jesus' word before he got all the way home. And I want to remind you guys that what Jesus said in John 10, 27, that those who are in his hand, he will never lose, is something you can believe even before you get home. See, brothers and sisters, we all must believe before we see. In John 5, God said this, Jesus said this about Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Then he saw it and he was glad. Abraham believed he was going to see Jesus. Then he did. Hebrews 11 verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, having seen them afar off. And having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Or how about Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In our culture we say, seeing is believing. In the Bible, the Bible says, believing is seeing. And you have to believe before you get all the way home. If you believe before you get all the way home, it will help you get home. Did you catch that in the text? Remember what time he knew? It was 1 p.m. And yet, when did he get home in a journey that can be made in seven hours? The next day. The man took the time to check in, spend the night, and go home the next day. Why? Because Isaiah 28, 16 says, whoever believes will not be in haste. <laughs> when you know whom you have believed in, you know what tomorrow holds. Number three, trust in Jesus by taking him at his word is not the same as fleeting excitement in what Jesus can do. Taking Jesus by trusting him through his word is not the same as sensationalism, though there's a lot of it. There's a great example of this in the Bible, Luke 23. This is near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the end of his life. The Bible says this about Herod in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for Herod had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, if you know a lot about the Bible, Herod is not one of the good guys. But when you read that he's very glad to see Jesus, you think, oh, great, he's glad to see Jesus, until you read he only wanted to see a sign done by him. When Jesus didn't do a sign, we read this in verse 11. Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. We receive Jesus by trusting his word, not by demanding sensationalism. But number four, since we can trust his word, remember what he has promised you. Friend, I wonder if you've ever listened to what Jesus says and acted on it like this man did. Have you ever heard what he said and then acted on it, trusted it, took a step of obedience? Hebrews 13, verse 5, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a great promise that you can trust with your whole heart. How's this one? John 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That applies to any of us. How about Matthew 7, 9 through 11? Ask, seek, knock. Whoever asks, 
receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, it will be open. You have earthly fathers. You ask them for bread. They don't give you a stone. You ask them for fish. They don't give you a scorpion. How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Or if you're struggling and feel like you can't succeed, 1 John 4, verse 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There are so many wonderful promises that Jesus has given that we can trust because he has said them. And number five, the fifth lesson. Don't underestimate the impact of your belief on your household. I know that not every time one person believes, the rest of the people believe. I know that. Later, Jesus will say in the Gospels, in fact, sometimes you must follow him when your own closest loved ones do not. Father, mother, brother, sister. But we do see a pattern that happens fairly often in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, where when someone devotes themselves to Christ, it has an impact on those nearest and dearest to them. Don't underestimate the impact of taking God at his word in faith on those nearest and dearest to you. Now, ultimately, this text is only possible because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Why can Jesus say to this man, your son will live? And the answer is because God sent his son to die. Jesus can only promise another man's life because he's going to take that man's death. See, because God so loved the world, he sent his son. His son was born to die so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have the eternal life that comes from the one who conquered sin and death on the cross and through the empty tomb. Jesus, in his willingness to save, shows that salvation is of grace. This is not a believing crowd, and yet Jesus heals anyway. Jesus, in his power to save, shows that he's overcome sin and death, and he can save from any distance. doesn't matter how many miles away anybody is. The Son of Man spans space to heal through his word, to save through his promise. Distance is no promise for Jesus. Anyone can call on him today. But the response of this man must be the response of us as well. You trust his word. You act on his promise. And you go resting in his fulfillment. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, in our finitude and fallenness, we think that we ought to see everything before we will believe. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. This man has to trust your word. And then he has to go. And then he will see. And so it is for all of us. Right now we believe Because of your word, we trust your promise. One day we'll see you face to face. Lord, in the journey, it can be challenging, but we have to trust before we get all the way home. But when we know who holds tomorrow, we don't have to be in haste today. So God, please give us peace that passes understanding, regardless of whatever we're going through, so that we can lament and we can We can pour out our heart to you, but we do so in confidence in God 
who has overcome death and who has made a place for us. We have a home that we're going, we're going to go to one day. Jesus has prepared a place for us, for any who believe in him. But the great danger would be a danger someone could make in this room right now. They could come to Jesus and think that's kind of interesting. He does some interesting things. I notice some other people find him popular, but I'll just walk away. Lord, please don't let anyone walk away. Help them to say, me, I can come and I'll never be cast out. Yes, you. So Lord, may we come to Jesus Christ humbled, realizing we need him. But may we come with a heart of gratitude, realizing he will receive us. In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com. E-I-G-H dot com.